Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. It's a real joy for me to be here with you this evening and to go through the book of Romans. Uh, As Pastor mentioned, we do have the bulletins, and in the bulletin, uh, we have uh, some things for you that will be a big help to you. So if you do not have your bulletin, would you raise your hand? And we at least have some more copies. We'll see if we can get you something. Raise your hand if you need one. And I, you know, I get my bulletin, I take it home, then leave it at home. Or looks like most of you brought it back. That's good. I appreciate that. And there are a couple things in the bulletin. And I need to allay some fears uh, uh, right away that you may be having. Um, the, uh, someone looked at the bulletin this morning when I were looking at it when I came in. They said, you going to preach two hours? <laughs> and the short answer to that is no. Um, and the longer answer is uh, no. So uh, we will not preach two hours. Uh, I am a little, uh, a little bit uh, intimidated in a way. I'm thankful to Pastor Indine for asking uh, uh, for me to do this series. And it's really an honor to, to open the book of Romans to you. It is a little intimidating, though, because how do we do justice to this wonderful, wonderful, tremendous book uh, without uh, making you feel like you're trying to try to take a drink from a fire hose. So we'll see what we can do here to to focus and make an overview. So if you look in your bulletin real quickly, and then I will, I will actually get into the message in just a moment, but just to orient you, you have the evening sermon notes here, and then in the very middle sheet, right, the two, the two facing pages, you have the outline, the analytical outline of the book of Romans. They did a wonderful job in formatting this. Um, uh, bring this with you each evening, Okay. You need to take it out, you know, and, and put it in your Bible and make sure to bring that back. Because we will be referring to this, and essentially we'll be using this as a guide uh, as we go through each message uh, in the book of Romans. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and in order to get us started here, I'll be reading uh, the first uh, 17 verses uh, of the book. Uh, although we will not be doing an exposition of this passage this evening, we'll focus on that uh, next week. Romans uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I purposed to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. 
So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Dear Father, what a, what a privilege, what a, what a blessing you have given to us to share your heart with us in this way, to share with us the wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is the power of God, the infinite power of God into salvation, and a full salvation, a complete salvation, an eternal salvation. And it's a salvation that's available to anyone who will simply believe, regardless of their background, regardless of what we've done. Lord, this is the gospel you've given us, and this is the gospel you explained to us in this book. And I pray as we review this, as we go over this wonderful, wonderful explanation, this tremendously tight, logically reasoned exposition, explanation of the gospel of Christ, defense of the gospel, exaltation of the gospel, I pray that it would become dearer to our hearts even than it, even more so than it is today. Lord, thank you that you saved us by this gospel. I pray that we would live by it and share it. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the name of the series is Grasping the Gospel. And the first message is the idea here of the power of God. And what we want to do in this message is we want to go through the, um, just go through a little bit of an, of an introduction to the book of Romans so that we will be in a position then uh, to uh, continue with the series and get a grasp on the different sections. Romans, grasping the gospel, and the message today is the power of God. As we've uh, already read, uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And I believe that this is the theme statement of the entire book. This is essentially what Paul is going to be talking about as he lays out his explanation. He's going to look at the different aspects of this, how it is the gospel of Christ, how it is the power of God, how it provides true and full salvation, how it was, is for everyone who believes, whether they be Jewish or whether they be Gentile. This is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. And uh, we've, I'm sure, from very familiar with this verse, uh, we, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And that's a challenge to all of us, isn't it? How, how Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And it's difficult, um, of course, when the world is trying, and the world, the flesh, and the devil, doing all they can to inhibit this message. To, to discourage us from sharing this message. To discourage us even from fully believing this message. But you know, I think that there's something else here. As we say, you know, Paul was not ashamed, and I just need to, I just need to decide I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. As true as that is, it does ignore a key question. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? You say, well, why do you ask that question? Because Paul here in the text tells us why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, it's interesting, not only was Paul not ashamed of the gospel, and in fact, some, some commentators think that Paul is writing here in, a, in, a, in an understated way. 
It's not just that he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's that he glories in the gospel. He rejoices in the gospel. He exalts the gospel. He exalts in the gospel. He lives the gospel. He had the gospel for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The gospel controlled him. You think about it. Paul, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, learned how to live like the Gentiles so he could preach to to them the gospel. Paul suffered uh, um, tremendous persecution, uh, stoning and beatings and imprisonments and shipwreck, all for the sake of the gospel. The gospel was his life. And it's our life too. And there was no and, and he gloried in it because it is in fact the power of God. A pastor friend of mine put it one time, Paul was a gospel man. <laughs> he was a gospel man. Are you a gospel man? Are you a gospel woman? Are you a person that, that thinks about the gospel and that lives the gospel? Well, that's our desire and our focus in this series is that we would so be, become so in, in love with the gospel as a result of what we learn about it in this book that it would have a renewed grip on our lives. We say grasping the gospel. Perhaps I should have entitled the series Being Grasped, grasped by the Gospel, Being Gripped by the Truth of the Gospel. So in this series, what are we going to try to do? Well, uh, we want to go through a survey of the book. It's, if it's not a 30,000-foot uh, view, maybe it's a five or 10,000-foot view. We want to be able to kind of see what's going on uh, uh, as we survey this. A verse-by-verse study or even a paragraph-by-paragraph study would, like, would take many more sermons. But the goal is to get this view, this overview, and we'll be able to see some of the more significant details. But our goal is to get the lay of the land and to enrich our own study. And, and this is really important. This really can't work unless we are all sort of into the book, right? In other words, the idea is to help, help uh, all of us be more effective as we go to this book on our own and as we study it on our own. It is certainly a book that is worthy, uh, that is worthy of our study. So this evening, then, the purpose of the book is a, is a basic orientation. We just want to get a basic orientation to the book with some motivation to us as we think about this to, to really get into this book for ourselves and to see how God is, uh, would use it in our lives. Um, so we're going to look at briefly this evening at six aspects to the book of Romans. The first one is we're going to look at its importance. Secondly, we're going to look at the back, a little bit, just briefly at the background of the book, we're going to look at the theme or themes of the book. We're going to look at its purpose or purposes. We're going to, I'm going to explain a little bit about the outline. We will not go through the outline in detail this evening, don't worry. And a challenge from the book of Romans in terms of what God would want us to do uh, with this truth that he's given to us. So the first thing we want to talk about is the importance, the importance of the book of Romans. And it's very, it would be very hard for us to overstate this importance, right? It is, it is a book that has had in, immense impact in the, in the lives of many people and in the history of the church. And we see this importance, first of all, in the esteem of the church. That is the esteem that the church has given to this book, the, the value that the church has seen in it. And the first thing I want to, and there's a lot of things we could say about this, but the first thing I'd like to point out is its position in the canon. Its position in the canon. You see, I know where Romans is. Uh, Roman, Paul put Romans right here after Acts. <laughs> and, uh, well, it is after Acts. And that's good. It makes a lot of sense for it to be after Acts. Um, 
But remember that each of the, of the New Testament uh, books was originally written on a separate scroll, right? Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. He wrote letters to the Corinthians. Uh, the Gospels are originally written as their separate compositions, and they circulated around the church, uh, around the different churches. And of course, Paul writes this letter. People know it's, it's gospel. They know it's, I'm sorry, they know it's apostolic. They know that it's authoritative. And so other people want to have it, so they make a copy for themselves, or another church would make a copy for themselves. And so you start to see these copies in these scrolls. So when we say that, therefore, there really wasn't like an original order to all of these books. Um, but, and uh, it is also true that Romans was not the first book written by the Apostle Paul. It was, uh, it was preceded by the letters to the Galatians, uh, the letter to the Galatians and the letters, uh, the First and Second uh, Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. Those books were all written before the Book of Romans was written. So Romans is not where it is in the in the Bible because it was written first. It's interesting though. By the uh, second or third century, the church began to copy these writings in collections in what we call a codex or a book. Uh, the book the book you have is in the form of a codex as opposed to the form of a scroll. And of course, when you put them together, these in a, in a codex, you have to decide how, what order you're going to put them in. And so there were various orders, but early on, and this is a, um, this is a picture here, are, there are two pages from the oldest collection we have for, of Paul's letters. It is normally dated to around sometime in the third century, which is the 200s. So it's dated really, in, 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 in historical terms, is dated very close to the time of the original writing. And this is interesting, it's a codex, but it's on papyrus, the papyrus read. Most of the book forms that we have, the codices that have survived, were on, on parchment, that is animal skin. But these were actually on papyri, on, on a uh, flattened out and, uh, and uh, papyrus uh, reed plant. And uh, it's interesting, um, uh, as well, by the 4th century, they began to be collections of entire Bibles. So by the 3rd century, and then by the 4th century, and then the 5th century, we have some of these, these collections that we still have. These are things that have survived down to this day. And so it's interesting, even though there was not really a, an, an sort of like an official council that says, you shall put these writings in this order, um, the, the books, Paul's writings... Regardless of the fact there were some difference in the arrangement of the New Testament, Paul's writings have always been found to be first of all his letters. In some of the books, uh, you would have the Gospels, and then you would have the general epistles, then you would have Paul's epistles, and then you would have some other books. Others would put Paul's epistles before the general epistles. But regardless of that, what we have uh, extant is that Paul's book of Romans, his letter to the Romans, is put at the beginning of his, of his writings. And it's not because it was written first. It is uh, generally been acknowledged, as Matthew Henry said, uh, due to its superlative excellence. The, the Gospel of Romans is the longest epistle Paul wrote. It is also the most comprehensive theologically. And it touches on fundamental, fundamental truths of, uh, of Christian doctrine as well as of the gospel. So we, we see here then that, that the, the, the church has put a high value. And I just have a couple of quotations here. Stuart Custer says in his commentary, Paul's epistle, epistle to the Romans is the most powerful presentation of Christian doctrine in existence. Or uh, Henry Thiessen says this in his introduction 
This is, in every sense, the greatest of the epistles of Paul, if not the greatest book in the New Testament. Now, when we say that, we're not denigrating any part of God's revelation. But it is true we know that there are certain books of the Bible that carry, in a sense, more theological weight or more theological um, content uh, than other books. All of it's inspired, all of it's profitable, all of it's important. But some of these books are, in a sense, central to the message of the gospel. So we see that in the esteem of the church. We also see it in the salvation of the lost, the importance of this book in saving people's souls. And I just have a few examples from church history for us. In 386, Augustine was converted through reading Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Augustine's mother was a devout Christian, and he was possessed of a brilliant mind and tried mystery religions and philosophy, but nothing seemed, uh, nothing was satisfactory. Under the influence of Archbishop Ambrose, he, or Bishop Ambrose, I'm sorry, he eventually came to accept the truth of Christianity, but he had a problem. He didn't want to give up his sin. That sounds like a very modern problem, isn't it? He wouldn't or couldn't give up his sin, until. The, but the power of God kept convicting him. And so he, he wrote in his confessions, his wonderful autobiographical work, uh, which, he, which he is addressing to God. So when he says, thee or thou, in this translation, he's talking to God. And he, and he describes this event. He said, I flung myself down, how I, how I know not, under a certain fig tree, giving free course to my tears, and the streams of mine eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to thee. I sent up these sorrowful cries, how long, how long, tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why, why is there not this hour an end to my uncleanness? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when, lo, I heard the voice as of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from a neighboring house, chanting and oft repeating, take up and read, take up and read. So he went back and he said, I grasped a volume of the apostles that he had had open, opened it, and in silence read that paragraph on which my eye first fell. And that was Romans 13b through 14. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. He goes on to say, No further would I read, nor did I need, for instantly, as, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom and doubt vanished away. Well, uh, about 1,100 years later, in 1519, Martin Luther was gripped by the truth that the just shall live by faith, Romans 117. He, he also shares this experience. He said, I meditated day and night on these words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it, as it is written. The just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel. But it is a passive justice, that is, by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. And he goes on to say, All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. 
immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. You know, it's uh, just as an aside, um, the, um, you know, it, you probably can't say that one event is the one thing that changed the course of history. But if, I, if you force me to pick one event that, that set the seeds for the modern world, I would have to say it was that event. That had more to do to change the modern world than just about any one single event that I can think of. You think about that. That was the birth then of the Reformation and then the birth of uh, so much more that we understand even as we live here today. Uh, tremendous, tremendous impact on the world through the realization of what God was saying here in Romans 1.17. Then a couple hundred years later, John Wesley was converted by hearing someone read Luther's commentary on Romans. He wasn't even reading Romans. He was reading Luther's commentary on Romans. Wesley was an unconverted priest in the Anglican Church. And he had been a missionary to America, but he had returned to England in failure. He, and, and so he wrote in his journal, in, that, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society, a society, that would be a Bible study, in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, these are just three examples from church history. And I think we would say that we don't, uh, we're not on the same page probably with any of these men uh, in all of their theology and would have some significant differences with them. But no one can deny no one can deny that their stories illustrate the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel really is the power of God. And besides that, how many people, how many thousands or even millions of people have come, have come to Christ through walking down the Romans road? There may be some people here this evening and you were led to Christ some, uh, in, in whole or in part through the testimony of what we call the Romans road. So I don't think anyone would deny the importance of, uh, of Romans as it explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, however, I think there's something we cannot uh, lose in all of this. It is, um, it is not important to only preach the gospel to the lost. It's also important for, to preach the gospel to the believers, right? You know, the gospel is not only the door into the Christian life. It is the doorway into the Christian life. But you know what? It's also the foundation of the Christian life. The gospel is the foundation of how we live today and how we live tomorrow and how we're going to live forever. The gospel is a beginning, but it's not an ending. And we do a great disservice to the gospel as if, we, if we get the idea that it is only something that you preach to the lost. It's something I have to preach to myself every day. It's something I have to remember every day. And the implications of the gospel. And what we're going to find as we get through the book of Romans is, is the Apostle Paul is going to show us the depth and the breadth and the richness of the gospel and what the gospel means for you and me, as well as what it means for the lost sinner who needs to come to Christ. It is the foundation of the Christian life. And I trust that that will be a challenge and a blessing to us uh, as we go through this series. Now, let's look very, very briefly here at the background of Romans. I don't want to go too much in detail. There's, there's all kinds of things we could say. 
But Romans was written around AD 56 to 58. You see some different dates there, but that's um, somewhere within that period toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey, from, and it was written from the city of Corinth. And so you see there the map of the Roman world and the gospel then, I mean, sorry, the letter then, Paul is there in Corinth, which is between the lower part of Greece, which is uh, called uh, Achaia, and the northern part of Greece, which is known as Macedonia. And then he is sending this letter to the city of Rome uh, in Italy. Now, the, uh, what about the church in Rome? Well, um, well, first point here, Paul had preached the gospel in, in the major urban centers from Jerusalem all up to Illyricum. And you can see Illyricum up there. That's in the modern-day uh, northwestern Balkans, right? You would have Croatia is there. And so he had gotten about as far as he was going to get in that first uh, effort in his missionary endeavors. Now, Paul didn't preach the gospel to every single person in that region, but what he did do was he planted churches, evangelistic churches, in the major urban centers, and then they took the gospel to the regions round about them. And it's very clear from the book here, he mentions it a couple times in the first chapter, that he's wanted to go visit them in Rome. He's wanted to minister them in Rome, but he's not been able to do that yet. He is now preparing to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to take the offering that he had collected from the Gentiles to take to the poor, the, the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And there is so much that's important about that. One of, the, one of the important things was he wanted there to be this kind of a harmony and this kind of mutual respect between the Jewish and the Gentile believers in the church. That was extremely important to him. And if, the, and if they would receive that offering, that would go a long way in, in bringing about that objective. Now, what about the church in Rome? Well, just to uh, make a comment or two, there is, a, there is a tradition in the Roman Catholic Church that Peter founded the church at Rome. However, there, that, that's really a, an untenable position. There are a couple reasons for that. One is that you see in the Jerusalem Council before this, but you see in Jerusalem Council that Peter is still in Jerusalem. So there's a problem with him having gone to Rome uh, to found the church at Rome. The second thing is Paul says in this very book, I do not build on another man's foundation. And he wants to go to Rome and minister. If an apostle had planted the church in Rome, then Paul would be laying on another man's foundation and that was against his practice. It seems more likely, much more likely, that, that the evidence favors the beginning of the Roman church by converts of Pentecost re returning to Jerusalem. And you see that here if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, this, the great sound uh, of the Pentecostal event, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that... Uh, that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now notice what, he, what they say, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Well, all of these folks are described as Jewish. And so I think the idea here is that the, the Jewish people, people who were born Jewish, and then the Romans, 
um, Roman proselytes who would have converted to Judaism. And groups of both groups are here represented. And I think the idea here is that uh, on, on, uh, more than likely the proselytes' first language would have been Latin because they're from Rome. And so I think the emphasis here is on the fact you have this multiplicity of languages being spoken or being heard at the great event of Pentecost. And so it makes a lot of sense then that these were people that went back to Rome and started the church in Rome. So having looked at the background, let's look quickly at the theme or themes, I guess we should say, of the book. Now, it's a bit of a challenge when we look at the theme because there are multiple ideas here. And various commentators have focused in on different themes as the major theme of the book. A few of those themes are, number one, obviously justification by faith. Justification by faith. The fact is that God declares us righteous when we trust in Jesus. Now, we, we, uh, I think we get to the place we take that for granted, but there are many, many people who are religious and would call themselves Christians who believe that God justifies you only after he, a long process of him making you righteous. And when you finally become righteous, then he will declare you righteous. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's putting the cart before the horse. God can't deal with us as sons and daughters unless we have already been declared righteous in his sight. Otherwise, we're condemned criminals in his eyes. So then the idea of instantaneous justification based on the merits of Christ and appropriated by faith alone is a foundational truth here in the book of Romans. But there's also the blessings of salvation. Think about Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. All the wonderful blessings we have. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Right? Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All things work together for good to them who are, uh, who are the call according to his purpose. We have these wonderful, wonderful blessings, including the fact that we're no longer slaves to sin, including the fact that we're no longer bound to the law. These wonderful blessings of, of salvation are ours. And one of the things that is included in the book of Romans and is part of the gospel message is what it does for us. In our lives. And if we lose sight of that, we will live a discouraged, defeated Christian life if we forget what God has done for us in the gospel and what he's doing for us now. Another very important principle we find in the book of Romans is union with Christ. You see that especially in chapter 6 and 7, when the reason why I am freed from the law is that I died with Christ and that I was raised with Christ. I'm united with Christ. And the reason I'm free from the law is that I am dead to the law so that, and using the illustration of marriage law in, 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 in the Bible, uh, so that we are free to be married to Christ, that is, to bear fruit to God. So our ability to serve God is a function of our union with Jesus Christ, and that is foundational to the gospel. How can God forgive, how can God put the punishment on one person for the sin of another person? And part of the answer to that is the fact that we are united with Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made of life. That is, all that are in Christ are made alive. So that's a very, very important principle as well. Then that, of course, then leads to the idea of the law and righteousness. In this case, we're talking about the Mosaic law. What, is, what does the law have to do with righteousness? And what does it do for me? Well, we know that it convicts me of my sin. It shows me that I'm a sinner. But can the law make me righteous? And Paul says very plainly in chapter 7, the law cannot make us righteous. 
It can only frustrate us in our attempts to be righteous. And so we'll have to look at that a little bit. But that's, that's clearly a major theme. Well, what about the law then? And that leads to another question. What is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles? Because the Jewish people were chosen by God. The Israelite nation was chosen by God to be his representatives and to live for him. And they lived under this covenant of law. And they were recipients or beneficiaries of this covenant that God had made with Abraham. So now why is it they're not believing the gospel? That's the major theme or the major uh, issue that, is, that, that Paul is addressing in, in chapters 9 through 11. What is this relationship? And it goes beyond that, right? He says in the very first, in, in our very theme verse, he says that, that it is the, the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Historically, this salvation came first to the Jewish people, but it's also now gone to all the Gentiles. You also see it in his appeal that the believers in Rome would show respect one to another, even though they're, they're different religious backgrounds. The Jewish background and the Gentile background would cause them to view various ethical and, and personal matters differently. And yet he said, no, you need to have this unity because that's a testimony to the fact that the gospel is the power of God to everybody, regardless of your, of your background. So those are key themes, but I do believe that really the main theme of the gospel that tie, I mean, the main theme of, the, of Romans that ties all these together is the gospel of Christ. See, and, if, and, and um, there's been a tendency, at least uh, in, in the past, to look at, look at the chapters 1 through 4 of Romans as justification, and then look at 5 through 8 as sanctification, and then 9 through 11 is a parenthesis. What about the Jewish people? And it's sort of like just this mixing. But, but in, I think if you look at it carefully, you will see that Paul views all of this as an integral aspect of the gospel. The gospel is a lot bigger than you think it is. That's the point. We oftentimes have, I think, a sort of a, a two-dimensional view of the gospel. And we need a deeper understanding. And so that's one of the things Paul does in this book. So the main theme of the book that holds all of these ideas together, I believe, is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it, why is it such good news? Now, let's, we have the same issue with regard to purpose, in a way, as we had with theme. Uh, and that is because there, there seem to be multiple purposes taking place here. I want to talk, though, about the, what I would call the immediate purpose or the occasion. Sometimes it's the occasion of the letter. And the occasion seems to be... Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, for Paul's, the occasion for Paul's visit, I mean the occasion for Paul's letter, that's a typo, I'm sorry. The occasion for Paul's letter was preparation for his visit to Rome on his way to Spain. Now, why do I say that? Well, Paul says at the very beginning he wanted to come see them, he wanted to minister to them, he wanted to be a blessing to them. And then he says toward the end of the book that he's going to go to Spain on a missionary journey and he wants, he wants to pass through and, and share with them. Paul clearly wants to minister to these folks but he hasn't been able to go, and he's not going to be able to go for a while. In fact, he's not going to get to go. We learn from the book of Acts, he's not going to get to go except on an all-expense-paid trip by the Roman Empire, right? He has to be thrown in prison. And you think about it, um, um, Paul is there, and he's discouraged, and, he's, and he's, he is in um, Caesarea for those, I think, a couple years, and he is, he is like left, <laughs> and nothing seems to be happening, and and the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, don't fear, you'll have to testify of me in Rome also. He, he, he gave him encouragement that Paul would in fact get to Rome. And Paul does get to Rome. And he's able even not just to get to Rome. See, if Paul just shows up in Rome, then he's just another person in this massive city. But he ends up in, in, in Caesar's household, the Praetorian Guard, and he has an audience before Caesar. 
That wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been arrested. And so the Lord is making sure that he can testify before kings and before the Gentiles and before the people of Israel. And God is fulfilling his plan for the spread of the gospel. But uh, Paul would like to get to Rome. He can't get to Rome. And you see Paul, notice here, Paul says he had fully preached the gospel, starting from Jerusalem and going out to Illyricum. So notice that whole part, he had, he had worked through that and he had been able to do that. But now he wants to go to the far western reaches of the empire, and that is Hispania or Spain. He wants to get to Spain. Well, you notice he had a base in Antioch and he got help from the Philippians, but he's getting pretty far away from his base, isn't he? His, his supply lines are pretty extended. And if he's going to take the gospel to Spain, he needs to have a place where he can be established and, and strike out from there. And of course, the natural place is Rome. Because you know what the saying is, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that means all roads lead away from Rome, right? All roads are bi-directional. So you can get to Rome, you can get anywhere else. And if you have an influence in Rome, you can have an influence anywhere else. It makes perfect sense that he wants to get to Rome to continue his missionary endeavors and move on to Spain. Now, that, that's not the only thing he's doing. There's so many things in this book that are applicable to us, that are applicable to believers everywhere, not just in Rome. But I think that's probably the occasion of the writing of the book. Now, therefore, this purpose, if you, if you, could, you could include these things in terms of what he's doing in the, in the gospel. First of all, he is explaining and defending the gospel that he preached. Notice, in, in 2.16 and in 16.25, he calls it my gospel. Now, it's not his gospel because he invented it. He didn't invent it. It's his gospel because he preached it. You say, well, why would he call it my gospel? Well, I think that Paul got a lot of flack from people for what he preached. And some people said he preached things he didn't preach. They said he preached that we should sin so that God, so that God would forgive more and God would get more glory. And he says, no, may it never be. So the Apostle Paul is saying this, he's saying, this is the gospel I preach. You want to know what I preach? This is what I preach. This is Paul's gospel. But he's also defending it because note that he also calls it the gospel of God in 1.1. He calls it the gospel of his son in verse 9. He calls it the gospel of Christ in 15.19. In other words, this is not my invention. This is not my, my little pet doctrine. This is the gospel that God has given me to preach, and that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. So he is explaining and defending the gospel. You want to understand the gospel? Understand Romans. Uh, but there's a second thing, and that was establishing the Romans through a clearer and fuller understanding of the gospel and its implications. He says at the beginning, if you go back to chapter 1, because we did read these verses, beginning in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. You're saying, well, that's if he visits them. But what is it that's going to establish them? He says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the what? The mutual faith of you and me. Even in this part, he's saying, look, I'm going to edify you, but I'm going to edify you according to the faith, right? According to our mutual faith. And of course, he's preaching that faith here in the gospel. He also says at the end of the book, in uh, chapter 16, oops, I lost that there. Go to chapter 16. And he says this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to what? 
according to my gospel. So Paul clearly sees the gospel as something that edifies, that edifies the believer as well as something that brings salvation to the soul of the lost person. It is something that builds us up as well as something that brings us into the Christian life in the first place. That's the second thing. Then the third thing, he's exhorting the Romans to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that they received. So he says in chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I exhort you, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, first of all, he's just been explaining the mercies of God for 11 chapters. That's the gospel, the mercy of God. And I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And the living sacrifice was the whole, the, the sacrifice there being referred to, I believe, is the whole burnt offering. That's the illusion. The whole animal is offered on the altar. So we are to offer our whole selves, right? Not just our bodies, but our minds. It's a, it, all of ourselves were to offer to God, which is our reasonable worship or our appropriate uh, uh, spiritual uh, religious worship. What does he want? He, he doesn't just want us to show up one day a week and say some words and give a sacrifice or, or do some religious acts. He wants us to live for him. And so Paul is exhorting them to do this. And so you see most of what we consider the practical section of Romans, uh, beginning in chapter 12 and going through chapter 15, you see that as part of this exhortation. So those are at least three things that Paul is doing in his purpose to the book of Romans, and you may find some more as well. Now, just very quickly then, uh, what about the outline? And I'm not going to say a whole lot about this other than to kind of orient you to the outline. So if you turn over in your bulletins, just take a quick look at the outline. The one thing I want to observe, and there, this follows a relatively common approach to the overall outline of the book of Romans. There are some differences. Some people would take uh, numbers two and three and put them together in what they call the doctrinal section. Um, I, don't really, I don't really agree with that. Um, but what, there is a very tight logical structure to Romans, and I hope that we'll see this as we go through the different sections, as we go through the different lessons in Romans. I think that each notice, what I have here, I have a theme verse or verses at, with each main point. So I would argue that the theme of the book is 116. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone that believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I believe that encompasses everything that's in the book. I believe you can take everything in the book and put it under that rubric as Paul is explaining the power of God in the gospel. The power of God unto salvation and is for everyone who believes. And then in the, 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 the second or, or then the, 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 so that is the end. That's the theme of the whole book. Then the, the theme of the second section, I believe, is found in, in Romans 1.17, which he says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul's going to focus in this section on the fact that the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. What's the only way I can be right with a righteous God? God is righteous. God condemns me. How can I be right with him? And the gospel is the only way that that can happen. Then section three begins, begins in chapter five, verse one. And it is, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And I believe that that summarizes all the blessings that we have in the gospel. And he deals with all those blessings 
um, beginning in chapter 5, verse 2, and all, going all the way down to the end of chapter 8. Those are all the blessings that we get in the gospel. Sometimes that's described as the section on sanctification. The point is, though, the gospel is the foundation of our sanctification. Um, the, the, our sanctification is built on the, and tied to the foundation of the gospel. So the gospel secures to us all the blessings of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Then number four, the gospel cannot fail to fulfill God's divine plan. The real issue in chapters 9 through 11, some of the more difficult chapters in the book of Romans, some of the more theologically charged chapters, and there's been a lot, a lot of ink spilled on those chapters, particularly chapter 9. The important thing is that Paul is saying is that the gospel is the fulfillment. It's the thing that God uses to bring about his plan. All the way from the beginning, you go all the way back to even to Abraham and the promises made to Abraham. And then you look forward to then the final salvation of the Jewish people. And you see that this whole process whereby God then gathers in the Gentiles, the whole process is is fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. The gospel that Paul preached was not against the promises to the fathers. It was in fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. And so I really believe some people call that a parenthesis, but I don't think it's a parenthesis. I think he is explaining a crucial aspect of the importance of the gospel, and it's important for us to know too. You know God has a plan. (laughs) God has a plan, and he is working his plan. And that can be an encouragement to us. And then finally, there's conclusion. And uh, sometimes it's hard to pull these together. Um, I like the theme of the section here being found in these three verses, uh, 15, 14 through 16. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And in this section, you find these wonderful, wonderful greetings where Paul is, is, is indirectly demonstrating the importance of working together in the fulfillment of the gospel mission. So I, I, I call that conclusion Paul's partnership with the believers in the gospel. So our goal is we'll be, for the most part, doing section one next week and then section two the following week. And so we want to go down and do each of these sections and, uh, as we go through that. So that's essentially the outline. I encourage you to take this, put it in your Bible, and, uh, and, and refer to it. I hope it will be a help to you. And then finally, there's a challenge to us. Okay, you know, this kind of a message is not, you know, it's... Um, uh, is not one of those step on your toes kind of messages, but there are some things here that really should challenge us. Uh, I had a friend. I have a, I have a friend, and he's a missionary in a very hard part of the country of Spain, in the in the Basque region of Spain. And we were in seminary together, and so this was over thirty years ago. And we were in church together, and he said, "You know what?" He says, "Why don't we memorize chapters in the Book of Romans together?" So we actually memorized chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Romans. Now I could, you know, like I said, it's over 30 years ago. I could not quote that to you today. But you know, there's a whole lot of it that's still in there. And you know what? He's still faithful. <laughs> I, you know, he just preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel. And, and the influence that, that that had on him. And I can't, you know, prove to you that it was from the book of Romans. But you know what? If we get gripped by the gospel, it will change our lives. It will change our lives. Let me just leave this, uh, this challenge with you, though. Read the book of Romans with the analytical outline in hand. If you can, 
If you can, if you have time, consider reading it each week. Now that might be, you, you have other things you're doing, you have other responsibilities, you have other Bible reading to do, so I would not burden you down with a commandment to read the book of Romans. But it would be great if that you are familiar. At the very least, for next week, for example, read chapters 117, you know, read chapters 1 through 4, basically. Because in order for this to work, your familiarity with it is going to be a big help. But I encourage you to do that with the outline in hand. Read the book of Romans with the analytical outline and see if you can see how it's, how, how it's developing. Also, see if you can identify various themes in the book. You know, um, steal your daughter's colored pencils, her art pencils, <laughs> you know, and mark it up, right? Okay, just uh, put the different themes in there and see what you can find there. I, I, I borrow, okay, tax, do, do it legitimately, don't steal. Okay, um, but get those. Okay, pray that God will give us a deeper understanding and appreciation of the gospel. I think this is really where we're headed with this, isn't it? That we would love the word of God, that we would love the gospel, that it would be powerful in our lives. I've found that when God is really working powerfully in my life, it's a lot easier to witness to other people. But when I'm dry, it's just really hard. And I, and I really believe that the gospel can impact us and then impact others through us. I want to leave this with us, though. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. This is the night he was betrayed. This is John chapter 15. And he says something that just blows me away. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. You're saying, well, what do you mean by that? Servants are on a strictly need-to-know basis. Servants get told by their master what they need to do to, to know to do their job. Some of you have probably been in companies where you have to be on a need-to-know basis. If you're in the military, very often you're on a need-to-know basis. You're, you're, you're given uh, classified information, but only so much as you need to do your job. Right? When we're servants, we don't get into the master's plans. But imagine now the master, see, he says, I've called you friends for all things that I've heard of my father I've made known to you. Imagine you have this, here's this Roman, this, this uh, uh, rich Roman um, uh, citizen, and he's got a villa, and he's, and he's planning different things. He's got political ambitions, maybe he wants to do some building projects. And so he has his friends come over for dinner, and they recline a table and they have this fellowship. And then he shows them and says, now look at the model. Here's the model of the thing I want to build. He shares his mind with his friends. And Jesus is saying, I don't call you servants anymore because I'm going to share with you my mind and the mind of my father. You know what we have in the book of Romans? It's God's mind. It's what, he's, it's what is important to him. And he's not just saying, do this and do that and go here and go there. He is actually saying, this is my plan. This is my gospel. And I want you in on it. Now, if that's the way God feels about that, how should we feel about it? How should we feel about it? You think maybe we should think, you know, this is something that God wants me to really get a handle on. Right? This is his will for my life. Think of the privilege that God has given us to let us in on what he's doing. To let us into his heart and into his mind. He's given us this tremendous book. Will you take the challenge to grasp the gospel?